Well, church, this morning, not unlike every other Sunday morning for us, we've gathered together to remind each other that the tomb is empty. Of course, on Easter Sunday, we do it that much more. And so we're pausing in the midst of our teaching series through the book of 2 Samuel this morning to really focus in on the account of the resurrection that Kelly read for us earlier in John chapter 20. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, feel free to turn there. Uh, we'll, we'll reference a, a bit of it, and I'll, I'll look back to the story that Kelly read uh, as well as we talk this morning. But by means of kind of digging into it, I was thinking about this earlier this week. Have you ever been to like, like a, a, a museum, like a museum with like really cool stuff in it and really old stuff in it? And these museums that have cool and old stuff in it, they have lots of rules, right? The museums that have cool and old stuff in it, they don't want you to touch anything. They don't want you to take pictures of anything. They don't want you to sneeze at the wrong thing or have elevated body temperature near the wrong thing. Everything is in this kind of far and away. So I was in um, a really cool museum one time, and I was aware of the rules, but there was something so cool that I wanted to take a picture of it. It was a Bible from the days of Martin Luther. And you can imagine, for me, that's the most tempting thing that there is. And so I took a picture of it, and I was immediately tapped on the shoulder by the curator. I don't know, probably not the curator. He's probably, he or she is probably way too high. The, the, whoever was in charge there, reminding me that these are only for my eyes. <laughs> I've got the picture if you want me to share it with you later. <laughs> Now, I was thinking about that in comparison to my kids. They, we would go to this museum in Philadelphia called the Please Touch Museum. You ever take your kids to, a, to that museum or to one like it? In this museum, you're encouraged to touch everything, right? It's the place where germs are most passed during the winter season. So you do all these things, and of course, there's nothing very special there, right? There's boats that you can float in the water and different things you can do. So you're allowed to touch it. And I was wondering, how much more, I understand this is impossible, right? but how much more would we appreciate the Declaration of Independence if we could hold it in our hands and touch it? Or or Van Gogh's art, if we could hold it and touch it? Uh, Or the Luther's Bible, if I could not only take a picture, but just take it out and and kind of leaf through the pages, right? I was thinking about this, like the the difference between a, a museum that has all of these incredible things and the Please Touch Museum. I was thinking about it in terms of the resurrection, that for many of us, we treat the resurrection as this high and holy thing, which it is, but in so doing, we just only glance at it from a distance, and we never really get our hands on it. Do you know what I mean? So I think what the gospel writers actually invite us to do is have a Please Touch Museum experience with the resurrection, And not like a high and lofty, behind the glass, don't sneeze on this, don't become too close. We saw you coming in and we we alerted the security that you were here kind of deal, right? And so I want to invite us to consider the resurrection as it occurred and as the gospel writers tell it to us so that we can actually put our hands on it and put our minds to it and envelop our heart around it. And so it's not just this passing reality that we affirm as part of our faith, but something that we know and hold dearly to. Sound like a good idea? Let's let's make it our effort this morning. Can I pray with you? Jesus, we affirm with Mary and the women and the disciples that we too have seen the empty tomb. Not in its original state, 
but in the fullness of 2,000 years of history of a God who is alive and moving. And we praise you for that reality in our lives this morning. Spirit, would you help us grab hold of the resurrection in a deeper way so that we could be formed as resurrection people for this world in which you have sent us. We pray and ask these things in your holy name. Amen. So really, if there is, well, you're going to laugh at me, right? Really, if there's a hero of the resurrection story, and you're like, duh, it's Jesus. So Jesus is the hero of the resurrection story. Fair. I'll grant that to you. But if there's a secondary hero to the resurrection story, for me, it's Mary Magdalene, right? She's moved way more than the rest. Uh, Peter and John, uh, John always refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. You know, he's the one that ran in and saw. And, and they go in and they see, and it says they believe. And I think what they mean by that is they believe that he's not there, <laughs> And then they go right back where they were and they start hiding again. But Mary's heart is so moved and and passionate about her connection to Jesus that she at least at the end of his life wants him to have a proper burial. She wants his body to be treated in, in a respectable and humane way and so that he can be remembered for who he was. And so when she finds it there, as the disciples run back, she is overwhelmed with grief that this reality is going on to her Lord, to her teacher. And as she's doing that, she's engaged by a man who asks her why she's crying. And she says to him, listen, if, if you've taken the body of my teacher, my master, just tell me where it is and I'll go get it. I'm not going to turn you in. I'm, I'm not going to get the authorities on you. I'm not going to blame you for it. I just want him back where he belongs And she assumes in saying this that he's a gardener. Now, this is something that's pretty easy to overlook at first pass. And yet, I think something that's pretty critical to the story. As one scholar has said, when Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener, she makes exactly the right mistake. Right? When Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener, she makes exactly the right mistake. Because earlier in the story, we're told that Jesus is buried in a garden, buried in Joseph's tomb, the first burial in a brand new tomb in a garden. And so it would be natural for Mary to assume that this man was a gardener. But little did she know that much more was going on. Jesus calls her by name, Mary. And when she hears him say her name, she knows who he is. Now, we're not told why he's disguised to her, if he has really taken on the garments of a gardener, if he's different in appearance, if her eyes have been temporarily blinded so that Jesus can speak her name and bring life and joy to her. But it's in the saying of her name that that her realization that Jesus is there and she grabs on to him and holds on to him and is, is, is ecstatic about his resurrection from the dead. And as Jesus begins to allow the story to play out, and as the gospel writer John, and I would suggest to you all of the gospel writers record the story, they're doing it with significant garden intentionality. For John, as it is for the other writers, it is not coincidence 
that Jesus' burial and resurrection takes place in a garden. And it is not coincidence that the resurrection happens early on the first day of the week. It's not because Sunday is the best day. It's because in the resurrection, what is happening is God is moving the story back to its origination. Back to the garden reality when the world was as it was supposed to be. And he's doing it not simply by rewinding time, but actually instituting what the New Testament calls new creation. And so when Mary calls Jesus a gardener, she's making exactly the right mistake. Jesus is a gardener that is instituting new creation. And so then I would suggest to you, if we were going to understand the, the, the centrality and the, and, the, and the core importance of the resurrection, we have to understand what actually happened in the garden all the way back in the beginning of the story of God. And many of you are familiar with this story, so we won't turn there. I'll just summarize it with you. Do you remember that God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth, and He created all things, and it led to the culmination of creating man, humanity, in His image, this special reality of creation. And do you remember what God says about that creation? He says it is, quote, very good. This is an allusion to the Hebrew concept of shalom, which we naturally translate peace, and yet in our modern English vocabulary, our kind of understanding of peace is only a small portion of the Hebrew understanding of peace. I've heard it said that when the word shalom is invoked, what's really being said is that it is either the wish or the statement that everything in the world is in its right place. That everything is as it should be. It is not just the absence of conflict in some part of the world. It's the wholeness of creation being as it was intended to be. And our only picture of this in all of history is in the opening chapters of Genesis in the story of the garden. Where shalom is known really in three incredible ways. The first is in humanity's relationship with God. And the second is in humanity's relationship with him or herself. And third, humanity's relationship with each other. In the garden, all of these things are in their shalom, in exactly the place that they're supposed to be. Humanity and God in perfect relationship. Humanity living in their true identity as worshipers of God and rulers over the world. And humanity living in right relationship with each other. But we don't go very far in the story until we're told about what we call the fall. That Adam and Eve, representative of all of humanity in some way in that story in the garden, are tempted by Satan to eat of the fruit of the tree of life, a tree that is forbidden for them to partake of from God. And we've talked about this before here at Hope. The fruit itself is not what is tempting humanity. It is what the 
evil one tells them eating this fruit will accomplish. Do you remember what he says? He says, if you eat of it, you will be like God. And if you really ever want to understand rebellion or evilness or, or sin, that people in the church talk about sin a lot, what you have to understand is that sin happens when humanity tries to be like God, right? Not in the sense that we try to be good, in the sense that we try to be ultimate. That we try to rule, that we try to control, that everything kind of serves and, and aims towards us. And so shalom in the garden is broken in deep ways because of humanity's grab for divinity. Shalom of a relationship with God is broken and there is now a separation between God and man. Whereas God and man walked in the cool of the night together in this perfect joined relationship in shalom in the garden, now moving forward, there's going to be barriers between God and man. There's going to be systems that need to be followed. There's going to be sacrifices that ultimately need to be instituted. There is a a brokenness in this relationship between God and between humanity. And there's a brokenness in the shalom of our relationship with our Self, immediately upon eating of this forbidden fruit, the storyteller lets us know that there's a deep sense of shame that rests on the hearts of Adam and Eve and really rests on the hearts of all of humanity. No longer living in a God-given identity, but now living in the sense of performance and needing to live up to things and always falling short. It's a broken sense of shalom. And then lastly, a brokenness in the shalom between humanity and each other. Do you remember when God comes and asks Adam and Eve what they've done? Do you remember what they do? They blame each other. Right? You ever do that? You don't do that, but your kids do that, right? They, they, they blame each other, right? So the natural instinct to personal brokenness is to attempt to tear down someone else near you so that they would be at the level you're at now. Shame always leads to blame. A lot of blaming me and a whole lot of blaming other people so that we can create what we perceive to be a needed level playing field. And so it should not surprise us that only a chapter later, a brother kills a brother. Right? The famous story of Cain and Abel telling us of the fullness of the brokenness of the shalom that was created and instituted in the garden. And you might remember the the symbolism of this fullness of brokenness that now encapsulates the world is God moving Adam and Eve out of the garden and creating a barrier. And do you remember it? It says that that God put an angel there to protect the entryway to the garden And he was bright and flashy, and he had a sword that moved back and forth. Forgive me for a second, but all I can think about is Dikembe Mutombo. Do you remember him? Remember Dikembe Mutombo? You didn't watch basketball in the 90s. It's okay. You might have saw him on the Geico commercial where he's like blocking cereal and stuff like that. Dikembe Mutombo was this gigantic center in basketball, and he was famous for like blocking shots all the time. 
Whenever he would block a shot, he had these very long fingers. He would wag his finger like this <laughs> to the people around him, right? So I picture some semblance of angelic version of Dikembe Mutombo at the garden, like wagging the finger. No, like you can't come in. And it's symbolized by this angelic barrier that separates the shalom of the garden from the brokenness that exists outside of it. And this brokenness has defined our world ever since. It has defined us ever since. We can speak of the brokenness that we feel in relationship to God. He feels far sometimes. He feels like he's not with us sometimes. We struggle to be obedient to him. The brokenness that we feel in in relation to ourselves, the need to perform in order to be accepted, the need to produce in order to be significant, the shame that even if we haven't named it in the front of our brain, lies deep in our being and drives us in so many ways away from the identity for which we were created. And we all experience the brokenness of shalom between humanity. Not just because we read about wars, though that is obvious, but because we have experienced broken relationships. We have experienced relationships that we have been responsible for breaking. And we have experienced relationships that we have been victimized in. And all of these things are telling the story of a world outside of God's shalom. And in desperate need of restoration. If you look at our world... And if you look at your life and don't feel the need for newness, then you are a very different person than me. I read the headlines. I look at my own brokenness. I look at the world before me. And I pray desperately for God to do something. And the truth of the resurrection is that He has And that he is doing something. Because calling Jesus a gardener is exactly the wrong mistake, or excuse me, exactly the right mistake to make. Because in his resurrection, he is actually undoing and reversing everything of the story that I just told you. Do you see it? That once there was humanity and God dwelling in a garden together in the perfect reality of shalom, perfect relationship humanity to God, perfect relationship humanity to self, perfect relationship humanity to humanity, rebellion, the necessity of humanity desiring to be like God breaks all of this and Jesus comes into a world that is no longer very good but instead very broken. And he takes on the burden of the world. Get this. Sin enters the world because humanity tried to be like God. And we are rescued from our sin because God was willing to be like humanity. And in so doing, he changes the whole table of things. He takes 
the burden of the sin on himself on the cross. Theologians and the scripture writers call it propitiation. It's a big word that means he is a sacrifice of atonement. That in his sacrifice, a once and for all victory has been won for everything that is broken in our world. And that in his resurrection, a new creation and the possibility of new life out of the ashes of brokenness is being announced by the great and glorious gardener of this cosmic garden. And we see it by the renewed reality of the presence of God with his people. Did you hear what Jesus said to Mary? You, you, you probably heard, just, it just passed right by you as Kelly was reading it. But it is profound what he says. He says, don't hold on to me. Because I've not yet ascended, right? I've not yet risen to the place that God has for me. I still have that to accomplish. Don't hold on to me because I've not yet ascended to my Father. Then he says, go tell the disciples that I have not yet ascended to my Father. Listen, and your Father. Did you hear that? powerful words, a changing of the story, that that God is no longer just the father of Jesus, but of all broken people who would be joined to Jesus. I am going to my God and to your God. This renewed sense of shalom coming back to the relationship between God and humanity. And therefore, on the basis of his atonement, being brought back to ourselves and to each other. And I love the symbolism of it. You have Jesus in a garden, and you have bright, shiny angels sitting inside a tomb with a barrier removed. Do you catch the symbolism of it? Where once the angelic Dikembe Mutombo, this is how you'll remember it, right? He said, no, no, no. Now you have angels in a tomb saying, yes, yes, yes. Come in. Come in. I love Matthew's gospel account even more because the angels aren't inside in his account. They're on top of the stone that is rolled away. Very garden-like. The reversal of all things is underway. And this is why Jesus on the cross can say, it is Finished, done, once and for all. The world set right if anyone would be joined to Christ. For the disciples who may have been hanging around the cross, the words, it is finished, were the very last words they heard from Jesus. But then, in John chapter 20, as the story continues... Jesus is gracious enough to not only talk to Mary, who's actually looking for him, but he's gracious enough to crash the disciples' fear-based party in an upper room somewhere, right? They're all like locked down, hanging out, close the lights, you know, do whatever we need to do. And Jesus shows up. It's, It's an incredible story. Verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders... Jesus came and stood among them and said, listen to this, peace 
be with you. And you might say, well, that's what they said when they greeted each other. And I give that to you. That may may well be true. But these words have more meaning than they've ever had before. Because Jewish people would speak shalom to each other in a sense of wishing it for a person to experience. But now Jesus, to the disciples who have just heard it is finished, the very next words they hear from Jesus are, peace be with you. That shalom is here. And that the making right of all things in the world is well underway through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we've been offered peace before in different things. Uh, we've been offered truces. We've been offered uh, you know, a, a ceasing of hostilities, whatever it might be. We've had reconciled relationships. And all of these things kind of last for a time or for a season. But this peace that Jesus offers is drastically different than anything else. In fact, in John chapter 14, he had told them in advance, my peace I will give to you. And I will not give it to you like the world gives it to you. This is weird words for him to say. Why would he say that? The world offers peace? Well, because the Roman Empire, who had conquered uh, the, the nation of Israel at the time, it had conquered most of the known world, in fact, had a creed. And their creed was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it was this weird thing where, like, if Rome conquered you, they would give you peace, right? It's a bizarre reality. But that's how they proclaimed, like, our conquering of you is actually a really good thing because we're bringing peace and freedom to you. And sometimes the United States gets a little bit like Rome, right? And so there's this reality in how it goes on. And so for people that were processing the word peace in that world and that some king was going to bring them peace, it is actually that peace came through oppression. And Jesus says, I do not give you peace like the Romans offer it to you. Actually, I'm going to give you peace in its fullest sense that will last. And we might think to ourselves, well, how can it be sure that it lasts? And here's what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He says that we will know peace and that Jesus, He Himself, is our peace. That the presence of Jesus with us is the means of peace. And so as Jesus stands there and announces peace to his disciples, it is his presence that assures them that this is a different kind of peace, a long and forever lasting peace, the hope of the final restoration of all things back to as they were. And the rest of the New Testament, friends, is an attempt to unveil and put words around the reality of this peace that Jesus has brought to the world through His resurrection. For those of you who are experiencing the brokenness of shalom between humanity and God, This is what the New Testament tells us. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means that you need not perform for God. That means that you need not present a resume of worthiness to God. That all of this has been accomplished for you in the person and work of Jesus. That peace is yours simply by relationship to Jesus. Paul would go on later to say in Romans 8 that there is nothing that can take that peace away from you. Not even death. Why can he say that? Because in the resurrection, Christ has overcome even death. For those who need a deep sense of shalom with themselves, listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new is here. That the shame that you have carried with you for all of the days of your life is erased in the presence of God. That when the cosmic gardener the the divine gardener of the cosmic garden, as you were, institutes new creation, that all guilt is removed from you, that all accusation is taken from you, that the shame that you bear, you are able to release, that you, as we've said a couple years ago, are free from your past. It cannot and will not be held against you. And if you are free, and if the presence of Jesus is peace to you, it is not just from your past, but also your present and your future. And so you need not worry about the shame of the past or fear the shame that awaits in the presence or the future. So the Apostle Paul can say things like he said to the church at Philippi, that you need not be anxious about anything. But the peace of God that passes all understanding is yours. How? In Christ Jesus. That peace for your soul is possible because of the work of Christ on the cross. And for those who need the promise of peace with others... This is what the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. His, that is Jesus' purpose, was to create one new humanity, thus making peace. When he writes this, he's referencing the divide in the church between Jewish people and Gentile people who have long since not liked each other. And he's saying that what Jesus has actually done is not just made a foreign or or an esoteric, or those probably aren't even good words, but a a non-tangible or non-visible peace between God and man. But he's also instituted a whole new reality of humanity that enables and allows us, part because we're not feeling our shame, to have peace with each other. Because consequently, you are no longer strangers, but fellow members of God's household. You see, friends, if the resurrection is a passing glance on a doctrinal statement that you know in some way defines you, then it's pretty cool. 
and we can celebrate it once a year. But if we are given permission in a please touch museum kind of way to grab hold of the resurrection and allow it to truly define who we are as new creation in Jesus, then it means that we now have peace with God, that we can have peace with ourselves, and that we can live at peace with each other. This is why Easter is so critical to our faith. This is why though we may wear crosses around our neck, memorializing and symbolizing the sacrificial love of our Savior, we are actually just as much defined by an empty tomb. I don't know how you make jewelry out of that, but we should, right? Just as much defined by an empty tomb, by a resurrection reality that we no longer have to live according to the ways of a broken world, but truly have been set free to have true connection with God, free from, the, from our past and the shame that we've carried, to, to live in, full, in wholeness and peace with ourselves, and free to live at peace with each other because we are not organizing our lives based on who's better and who's worse, but rather on an economy of grace that says, I give without expecting in return. Because my Savior gave without expecting anything in return. This is what it means, and way more, to be people who are defined by the resurrection. Can I pray with you?